Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today I have on the line John Sanders, well-known open theist author and uh, spokesman for the movement, really uh, one of the leaders in the movement. So, John Sanders, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay. I was raised United Methodist and have always been in what we what I now call the free will tradition of theology. I've never been uh, a theological determinist. But some of my friends in high school uh, were Baptists and Calvinists, and they came from that, that position. And uh, we had interesting discussions in high school on that. And then in college, I decided to pursue degrees in philosophy and theology. I got good in, in uh, systematic theology. And I've been teaching since early 1980s, mid-80s. So I don't know if you want anything else specific about yeah. so background or anything. My first uh, experience with you is I read the book, The God Who Risks. And one thing that I found okay. really interesting about that book, just, just the way that you positioned yourself. You you would start with a verse like a Calvinist proof text or a, a foreknowledge proof text, and then you'd go through various reasons, like a like a cascading list of reasons why it doesn't work or a cascading list of alternative readings. They they might be mutually exclusive of one another, but your critic would have to answer each one of them in order to yeah. hold on to their proof text as a proof text. And I found that very interesting and invigorating. And then I also read about you and the openness of God, and you contributed a chapter there, a very good chapter about early Christianity. So I, I found that interesting. Yeah. Richard Rice had written a biblical section on that, and in one of his yep. interviews, he mentioned that he didn't know why he was picked for that. I, I actually think that you would have been maybe a better pick for the biblical section. Maybe if you could have written both the biblical and the history of Christianity section, might have yeah. been a better book. Well, yeah. Well, let me tell you how that that, that came about. Um, so I, I I was interested in the work that um, analytic philosophers of religion were doing, like William Hasker and David Basinger. What they were saying was like, "Wow, this is great. We got to get this out to a bigger, a broader public." And I said, and, and Clark's like, "The work you've done on on this." And he said, well, "Why don't you write a book?" I said, "Boy, I'm years away from doing all the research, though." And he said. Oh, we'll just call these guys up and ask if they'll contribute a chapter. (laughs) (laughs) I never thought of it. And so I actually edited the book, but I edited the Openness of God book. But what we decided to do was instead of having my name as editor, because I was totally unknown at the time, and Pinnock's name was huge. And so we decided, well, let's just have five authors listed, and that way Pinnock's name will be first, and, and that'll get you know more market. It was a marketing decision, mm-hmm. and it was great. So I, I actually, to be honest, I asked Terrence Fredheim to write the biblical chapter, and he was he, too busy with other writing projects oh, in that man, time. Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and um, so I contacted Rick Rice, and because he had done, of course, a book called The Openness of God about you know, eight years before. And he had some biblical background. I said, well, you know, would you write this? And, and uh, But particularly pay attention to Fredheim's work. And he said, sure. So I, I could have done that. It just would have taken a little more time uh, to do it. That's understandable. Did Walter Bergman's name come up at all? Uh, no. Um, Walter is... I know Walter, and he's interesting, but um, he, he has a little different approach than Fredheim does. Mm-hmm. Um 
Fredheim is a pietistic Lutheran, and he is very committed to God's goodness. And uh, Brueggemann is not. Brueggemann says there, there's two texts of Scripture. Uh, one where God's this horrible, maniacal, you know, genocidal, uh, vicious God. And even Israel never knows for sure if God loves uh, her. Mm-hmm. And Fredheim says, no, 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 let's look at those texts. And I don't think they're saying what Brueggemann says uh, they are. And he says, yeah, they're difficult passages, but ultimately God is loving. That's a major motif of, of the Hebrew scriptures. So um, I didn't think of Brueggemann because of his approach to those texts. And uh, Fredheim was my, my real only yeah. choice there. And Freethian, he wrote the really good book, The Suffering of God. And I said, oh, he's excellent. Yeah. Yeah. And then his, his work on uh, God and world in the Old Testament, a relational uh, theology of creation, is just fantastic. And, and then he has detailed studies on uh, the passages in Jeremiah and First Kings, et cetera, the journal articles. That, uh, if people are interested in this, they can go to my new website. Here's a plug for my new website. drjohnsanders.com. Yeah. Um, dr. So drjohnsanders.com. Yeah, and I went and to that, and it's a beautiful I, website, beautifully programmed, yeah, designed. It so, looks nice. Well, thank you. So, I, uh, by the way, my daughter Mandy designed that, and she deserves all the credit for it. Um, and uh, but I, I posted a bibliography, and I have all of Fresheim's works uh, on there. If anybody's interested in, in the detailed texts, uh, the detailed studies of particular passages that he has done, he's just a master at noticing incredible nuances and directions of the Hebrew terms. Yeah, that's that's always good. I do enjoy reading his work. I have a few of his commentaries and uh, listen to a few yes. of his lectures. They're very good. Okay. Well, my, my suggestion just the other two uh, topics that I've published on besides open theism are the questions about uh, the what's known as the unevangelized, those who've never heard of Jesus. And if Jesus is the only Savior and God wants to save everyone, then what about those people? So I've written quite a bit on that. And then my latest topic is called uh, Applying Cognitive Linguistics, which is how humans think about anything, and applying that to questions like theological topics such as sin, salvation, morality, God, etc. So that's my new book that will be out in August called Theology in the Flesh is doing that. And I think it is related to open theism, but I don't bring up open theism in the book, but I think it's very much related to that and. Uh, I'll, I'll be writing some things on my website about that. Yeah, definitely. I was reading one of your articles about cognitive linguistics, and one of the phrases that you say is, uh, you know, yeah, the Bible writes in metaphor about God, but in a way, all language is metaphor. Yeah, the way I put it is, um, all I believe there are literal, there's literal language about God. So if, if we say God is an agent who loves Israel, okay, I think that's a literal statement, but most of the language is figurative. Figurative is dependent upon another, what we call, domain of thinking. So a basic uh, metaphor is uh, like, something like uh, Yahweh is the husband of Israel. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Yahweh can't literally be Israel's husband, but think about a husband-wife relationship, then, wow, all kinds of ideas come to play. So it's about how... Israel should behave, how Yahweh has responsibility to, to take care of Israel, if that's his wife. So it's just rich with inferences about the kind of relationship one should have. And without those metaphors, 
were left with very minimalistic ideas, such as Yahweh loves Israel. Okay, but that, <laughs> but that's not nearly as rich as Yahweh is your father, Yahweh is your husband, Yahweh is a shepherd. Those uh, aspects of the relationships that you're supposed to have and how you should behave mm-hmm. that the literal language doesn't tell you. Yeah. That's just a brief little statement about that. And I, in the revised edition of The God Who Risks, I, I briefly was working on that conceptual metaphor stuff in, in Chapter 2 of, of the revised edition, but I couldn't do much with it uh, at the time. And, but I realized that that was a huge, uh, a very important way of responding to critics like Bruce Ware and others who were saying, well, if you take passages like God changing the divine mind literally and God having emotions literally, then why don't you take the passages about God having a long nose and God having arms and eyes, why don't you take those literally? And I realized, oh, okay, I'm not taking any of those passages literally. I think they are metaphors about God and about God's relationship uh, to us that speak truth. Now, here's the difference. They don't think metaphors tell you truth. Yeah, they think it is in the words of John Calvin, baby language, gaga, goo, goo. Right. It doesn't mean anything. Right. Yeah. But, but we use metaphors all, all the time in our language. So if, if we say, for instance, Tom is crazy about Susan, we think of, of it as insanity. And he's not responsible for his actions. Something's come over him, taken over. Or we say that uh, she has a strong power over him. <laughs> um, or she's his better half. Or her love sustains him. So we think of love as a nutrient. So we can think of love as physical forces being swept off your feet as a nutrient going on a journey together and we've come a long ways in our relationship. So the metaphors are what we use to really understand our experience of love because it's so full and rich uh, of an experience and we need multiple metaphors. Same with God. God is incredibly dynamic and rich in relationship with humans. No single metaphor says everything we want to say mm-hmm. about our God's relationship with us. And what I like about your work on cognitive linguistics is I try to stress in my podcast reading comprehension techniques. And, yeah. And, uh, and that's all cognitive linguistics is about is how do we normally understand how metaphors work, how things are said, in what ways they apply, what kind of parallels can we draw from those things. So it's, yeah. it's, it's all reading comprehension. That's what I like about it. Yes. It, 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 yeah, cognitive linguistics is just how the human mind functions, how we actually reason and understand electricity, uh, the solar system, uh, government, uh, democracy. It doesn't matter what the topic is. Cognitive linguistics says this is how we understand things. And so what I'm doing is just taking that field and saying, oh, well, sure. And this is, of course, how we understand God and how we understand salvation, how we understand sin, etc. Yeah. So kind of on that topic, James White was debating. I was listening to a debate between him and Hunt. In that debate, James White, the Hunt said that, uh, you know, you need to read these verses like a normal person would read this verse, and they wouldn't take it in a Calvinist sense. And James White's rebuttal was, you know, ancient Israel would have seen things differently than us. They wouldn't have our standard reading comprehension of these texts. And that just seemed astounding to me that that's his claim. That's what he's banking on. That Yeah. Well, I think that there could be a point to, to what he's making. But first of all, I would say, number one, we're all human. 
And so we have some basic ideas that are shared across cultures and across languages. Then uh, different languages and different cultures will have particular approaches to things. So let me, let me give you an example. Uh, in the uh, Ten Commandments, you'll have no other gods before me. And we read that today and say, well, of course, there's only one God that exists. There, are, there aren't other <laughs> gods. And so we read that text and say, oh, well, uh, so it means, oh, whatever you aspire to, you know, <laughs> uh, what you value the most. You know, right. that, that's your God. Okay. Well, ancient Israel didn't understand it that way. They understood it as, no, the God Baal, the God Ashtoreth, the, the God Marduk of the Babylonians, the uh, God uh, Ra of Egypt. That's what they were thinking when they, they read that passage. So we read that passage differently. So there can be times where Israel's understanding is different from ours. I, I, so I would concur with that. However, the statement that, oh, they they had this deterministic outlook on life, and so that's the way they read, you know, the passages. I'm like, well, wait a minute. How do you know that? Where, mm-hmm. where do you get that from? Where are you getting it from these texts? Okay. Well, all right. Well, let's look at the text. And it's fascinating that the earliest, you know, the, most of the Jewish interpreters at the time of Jesus, and then all the earliest uh, Christian interpreters prior to Augustine, nobody read those texts as deterministic. So his claim that, well, you know, Israel, well, if they were, if they were all a bunch of Calvinists in the, Old, in the Old Testament, then it's just fascinating that that gets lost in Second Temple Judaism and it gets lost uh, in early Christianity until Augustine reclaims it. Yeah, that'd be his, his, his reading. That's like, wow, that's a strange way of reading the, the Christian history. And this is something the Calvinists champion, and if you don't believe it, then you're pretty much a heretic in their views, and it's not clearly defined in the text that they try to object yeah. to. Yeah, oh. yeah and so going, going back to a point you made in the introduction, so in this conversation I had with Dr. White a few weeks ago, and he said, well, look, the clear teaching of the Bible is determinism. I'm like, well, I should, what I should have said to him was, so you're saying, because Bruce Ware made this point, you know, a long time ago against open theism. Um, what you're saying is that all these, not just open theists, but all the Arminians, all the Eastern Orthodox, all the Pentecostals are just either dumb, <laughs> they just don't see the plain, you know, clear teaching of Scripture, they don't see it, they're stupid, or they are spiritually corrupt. Mm-hmm. So if you say this is the clear teaching, well, then I have to ask, so why do millions upon millions of Christians for 2,000 years disagree with theological determinism? It is so clear. And it has to be either they're just dumb or stupid or they're spiritually inept. So, when you, so I should have said that to him and put him you know, in, in, a, in a defensive position there because that's, that's quite an accusation to make against everybody else. So what I do in my work, or I try to do it as much as possible in my speaking, is to say to people, look, I'm not saying this is the only way text can be read. You know, predictions of the future and, and God's emotions. And that. Of course, brilliant people like Aquinas, Calvin, read these passages differently. Okay, <laughs> that, that's true. But what I'm saying is, this is a legitimate reading. And Christians over the centuries have read some of these texts this way. Open theists come up with some rather, you know, new meanings uh, of these ideas that are only a few hundred years old. Okay, all right. But nonetheless, yeah, 
clear. And other people, everybody, all other theological positions, the, the proponents are stupid or spiritually corrupt. I think is just well, they're wrong-headed. Yeah, so I don't want to say that of my Calvinist friends. I want to say, I, no, you read it differently. What are your reasons? Here's how I'm reading it. Let's have a conversation. I'm just astounded. It's like you're telling me the author of Genesis believed that God was totally immutable, outside of time, eternal, and omniscient of all future events. That's that's what you're claiming. That that's your actual literal claim. And it just seems seems out of whack to me. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I, I, again, I don't think that that flows very well with the majority of the text. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about your recent discussion with James White. And I had okay. a review podcast on that. And specifically, I just want to talk about... Which, by the way, I want, want, by the way, I want to tell the audience, I, I thought your review and analysis was excellent. Yeah, thank you so much. I was wondering, on Isaiah 40 through 48, I, I've watched your first debate mm-hmm. with James White, and I paid very close attention to your response to Isaiah 40 through 48, because that was something I was very interested in at the time. So I recalled it, and you pointed out then that Isaiah 40 through 48 was a power claim, not a knowledge claim. And James White yeah. brings this up again in his recent discussion with you, claiming Isaiah 40 through 48 is a knowledge claim instead of a power claim. Right. So do you want to speak a little bit towards that? Okay. For our listeners, in the revised edition of The God Who Risks, this is discussed on pages 79 through 80. So the reason I say that is because, you know, in a talk like this, uh, conversing back and forth, I don't always remember all the details that I have in the belt, which you can take hours to write a paragraph <laughs> and, and get all the information correct. But one of the things I said in, in there is notice Isaiah 46:11, which says, "Where is Bruce Ware is fond of quoting that I declare the end from the beginning." So this is about you know God proclaiming it, and I I agree that that is an element in the text. Uh, I paraphrase Yahweh as saying, "I'm telling you ahead of time what I'm going to do, so that when it happens, <laughs> you will not be able to claim that idols brought it about." Okay, so that's my reading of, of these passages mm-hmm. that. Idols can do this. We, we really should be trusting in, in these other gods. And Yahweh is saying, no, I'm the one who's declaring the end from the beginning. So here's what's going to happen. And then Isaiah 46.11 says, truly have I spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, I will do it. So there, it's not the issue of God foreseeing the future, which of course, where and white don't believe God foresees the future. They believe that God has decreed the future, totally ordained everything that's happened. So in their view, God foreordains all events, and that's why God knows what's going to happen, or to use a metaphor, God writes the script. That's why God knows what the, the, the book says. <laughs> God has written mm-hmm. the whole script of, of human history. But what I see God saying there is, I'm telling you this, I'm going to do it. You will not be able to say that one of the other deities brought this about. Why? Because I'm telling you this is what's going to happen. What's going to happen? They're going to come back from the exile. They're in Babylon, but they're going to come back. And Yahweh is saying, I'm going to bring your return about. And you will know it then. And I hope that by then, and the whole point, so this is one of the other questions, what's the whole purpose of these prophecies? The purpose is to get Israel to turn back to the true God. Yahweh, the God who brought them out of Egypt. And the Calvinists, they don't believe that. They believe that God predestines people to believe or not to believe 
And so yeah, the whole yeah. purpose of all of God's acts throughout the entire Bible, when God says, I'm doing this so that this will happen, I'm hardening Pharaoh's heart so this will happen, they right. believe that God could have just made that happen without that casual event that God described as doing to make that thing happen. Right. Oh, Isaiah 48.3 says, I have declared the former things from the beginning. They went forth from my mouth. I caused them to hear it. Suddenly I did them, and they came to pass. So it's a reoccurring motive throughout uh, Isaiah 40 through 48. Yeah. God's power yeah. acts, right? Yeah, and so what I, what I see going on there is Yahweh is reaching out to Israel, seeking to get Israel to repent. Now, of course, the Calvinist says God doesn't seek or attempt to do anything. God just wills it and happens. But then you have to explain passages in Jeremiah, where Jeremiah lays out this basic overall way of understanding prophecies. And there Yahweh says, I may declare of a nation that I'm going to tear it down. But if that nation repents, well, then I reserve the right <laughs> to not bring about uh, destruction of that country. I also can say that I'm going to raise up, you know, support and make a country prosperous. But if they do evil and, and oppress the poor, etc., well, then I reserve the right not to bless them. Jeremiah lays out this general way of God working with Israel and with the surrounding nations that I think is very relational mm -hmm. uh, in terms of God saying, look, this is the way I want to operate. I want to bless you. But if you don't cooperate and you don't take care of the poor, take care of the, the widows and orphans, love one another, well, then, you know, then I deserve the right to bring about some bad things to you. So I think that is a general way of, of under, understanding what's going on here. And, of course, the Calvinist says, no, nope, it's all determined. <laughs> so if God wants Israel to repent and, and, and worship Yahweh at this point in history, then that's what they'll do. If God wants them to worship these other gods, then that's what they'll do. I'm sorry. I just have a hard time reading the text as saying that. Yeah, absolutely. In the Jeremiah passage, one thing I find really interesting is it talks about the two conditions. If what if someone's bad and becomes good, and one stone's good and becomes bad. And in one it says, I won't do what I thought to do. And the other it says, I won't right. do what I said to do. And, yeah. and so like a Calvinist, like usually when you present them a text, they'll say, oh, that, that word there doesn't mean God's actually thinking or meaning to do something like in Nineveh. God says he's going to overthrow the city. But it's really conditional. It's using multiple yeah. words to describe the same concepts, thought and said. Yeah. Yeah. And you can see that working out with uh, people like um, Eli, the priest of Israel, where Eli's sons have been acting wickedly. The pro uh, Samuel is being raised up uh, as a priest and, and a prophet. And the word uh, comes about to, to Eli, and God specifically always says to, to Eli and his, his household, you were to be priests forever. Your family was going to be a priest before me forever. But forget it. Your, your sons are so wicked and terrible and abusing the priesthood that you're out, and I'm going to turn to another family line and start over with, with somebody else. Mm -hmm. And then you see that same thing with King Saul. First Samuel 13, 13 says, Saul, uh, God, God says that Saul and his lineage, Jonathan, etc., would have been kings forever in Israel. That was God's plan, according to 1 Samuel 13.13. Then, you get to 1 Samuel uh, 15, and Yahweh says, okay, I've had it with Saul. He, he just won't cooperate. He won't do what I want him to do, so I'm going to choose somebody else, another family line, and we know. So there you see Jeremiah's general way of working, talking about how God works mm -hmm. in Israel, in some specific examples with uh, 
the priesthood and the kingship, which are very important, you know, of course, aspects of, of Israel. Yeah, so God says, I'm going to give you an eternal kingdom, or I'm going to make you an eternal priesthood, and then he revokes it. And it's not yeah. like God says, oh, I'm, I need to stay true to my word because I have some omniscience of the future, and that's why I was able to make this prediction or prophecy. God says, you know, you failed me, and uh, your eternal kingdom was based on these conditions, which you failed, and so I'm just going to change my mind. And he thinks nothing of it. And the text thinks nothing yeah. of it. The author thinks nothing of it. The only people who think anything of it is the Calvinist. Yeah. Well, and here I, I want to broaden it a little bit uh, to evangelicals in, in general, because one of the reasons why evangelical Christians in North America have looked to these biblical predictions with such as placed such importance on them is because they're used to prove that Jesus was the Messiah and that the Bible is the inspired word of God. So, and, and just as a heads up, okay, I don't think we need to do that. So I'm not worried about proving the inspiration of the Bible. And, and I'm not going to base it on these predictions. But these are given you know, hundreds of years in advance. They came about in fulfillment of specific detail. Therefore, it had to be from God. And that's how they've been used for centuries. And so it's, you know, I realize that open theism saying God doesn't, you know, know the future. Now, God can bring things about in specific details if God desires to. But that's taking away a huge apologetic move that many evangelicals have. So I, I understand the, the nervousness that many of them feel about taking that away because of, because of how important it is. Mm-hmm. I just don't think that to prove the inspiration of the Bible. I, you know, I, I'm a Christian. Just the Bible is, <laughs> is part of the Christian tradition. It's part of, of how we know what God is, is like. So... I'm not worried about proving that to other people. I think that our lives and the character of the church overall is what demonstrates that, hey, God is with these people. So uh, I just have a different approach than many evangelicals to how we come to understand the inspiration or why the Bible is inspired. Yeah. Uh, and so these predictions, and that's why when they go to places you know, like New Testament and say, oh, you know, like, uh, Jesus fulfilled this, you know, uh, prediction. He was born in Bethlehem, and and you know the cru- the crucifixion and all this sort of thing from Psalm 22. But boy, when you go back and read those Old Testament passages, I'm sorry, they they just don't say what many people have thought they said. And nailing, you know, and the, the Hebrew is like a lion at hands and feet. It's like, well, that doesn't sound much like <laughs> crucifixion to me. Um, yeah, well, it's kind of related. Yeah. One of my cousins, um, for example, he turned away from Christianity, and one of his reasons was he cited the failed prophecy of Tyre or Tyre, however you want. Oh, to sure. Yep. So that's I think that's one of Open Theism's strong points. You brought up the prophecy of Tyre in your discussion with James White. Do you want to talk a little bit yep. about what happened there? Sure. For listeners, this is uh, pages eighty-one to eighty-three of the Gospel Risk. And in Ezekiel 26, the prophet Ezekiel says, Yahweh declares that King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon is going to destroy Tyre, the city of Tyre in Lebanon. And he says it will be uninhabited. There will be no music or dancing. Things are going to be totally desolate, etc. And, of course, that's not what happens. And how do we know that? Well, Ezekiel 28 says <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar took most of the city of Tyre, but he couldn't take it all. He he actually uses a, a wonderful metaphor. He says he rubbed his shoulder bare. Ezekiel says 
Nebuchadnezzar couldn't capture Tyre. Well, okay, Egypt instead. So the prophecy in chapter 28 says, the prophecy in chapter 26 didn't come to pass, not in all the details. And this is what I'm interested in, is because people like White and others, and Bruce Ware, in fact, said that God, because God is a determinist, quote, gets everything right, end quote. <laughs> so Ware says all these passages get everything right. Well, Okay, well then what about Ezekiel 26? It doesn't look like everything is right here, right? And then, of course, when you say uh, God said, well, Nebuchadnezzar can have Egypt, Nebuchadnezzar did march on Egypt, but they formed a peace treaty, and he never conquered Egypt. So that that didn't you know come to pass exactly as they said. When you look at Second Kings 20 with Hezekiah, and the prophet Isaiah says, thus says the Lord, thus says Yahweh, this is going to happen. It's done. And he leaps, you know, prays and says, Yahweh, this is like this. And Yahweh sends Isaiah back and says, okay, this is Yahweh. You will have more years. I can't remember the exact number of years, but more years to your, to your life. Jonah, of course, is a great example of, of these kinds of, of predictions. This is what's going to happen. Forty days, you're toast. You're wiped <laughs> out. And, and, of course, as a Jew, I don't blame him for wanting the destruction of the Assyrians. They were horrible. They were terrible, exceedingly violent and wicked and uh, against the Jews. And I, if I was Jewish, I'd probably want them wiped out. And so he says, 40 days, you're toast. And then they repent, and Jonah is just throwing fits. He's, he's angry at God. And God says, why are you so angry? And Jonah says, because I knew you were a God who doesn't always do what you say. You said you're going to destroy them, and now you're not going to destroy them. Why? Because they've changed the way they were living. So again, I think it goes back to Jeremiah, that all these are the, you know, if you see that pattern in Jeremiah, it's like all these fit. Yeah. And so then when, when evangelicals look at these passages, and particularly theological determinists, then you have to say, well, okay, number one, why are some of the details not right. Why aren't they? Okay. So some people say, oh, but you see, in fact, you brought this up in, in e- email. I don't know if it was on your analysis of the podcast, but you pointed out to me that some people say that uh, Alexander the Great is actually thought of as fulfilling uh, Ezekiel 26 <laughs> because the word nations, plural, is used there. Well, okay, let's, let's, let's go with that for a minute. If God has exhaustive foreknowledge for God is writing the script, and it's all these details, as where it says God gets everything right, but then I think it would have been spectacular for God to have said, it's going to take most of Tyre, <laughs> not at all, and then, uh, 300 years later, 200 years later, a guy named Alexander is going to come along, and he's going to finish the job, he's going to take the complete city of Tyre. That would have been a spectacular prediction. But that's not what, what's good here. And, and so there are a number of predictions that either don't come to pass at all, like Jonah or Hezekiah, or don't come to pass in all the details, such as Ezekiel 26 and Acts 21:11, where they say Paul is going to be bound by Jewish authorities and handed over to the Romans, and it's actually not doesn't happen that way. The mm-hmm. Romans rush in and rescue Paul <laughs> from uh, the Jewish authorities in the temple. And so my point is simply, if God completely foreknows the future, then Bruce Ware is right. God would get all the details correct. Yeah. But all the details in the text are not correct. The the gymnastics that they go through just to try to 
salvage these prophecies are crazy. Well, there could have been a Roman in the audience, and he was the one who bounded Paul up. You, you hear that? You're like, okay, that's, yeah. that's crazy. That's not what they were talking about. They were talking about the Roman government binding Paul. Yeah. That's the idea. It's like Alexander the Great. So the prophecy was made against people who weren't even born yet. This prophecy against princes for their evil was directed yeah. at killing people who who weren't even evil yet, weren't even born yet. How does that make any sense? So I, I think what, what people who do that kind, make that kind of move are doing is, but look, all the details have to be correct. <laughs> How can we make them correct? Because it's obvious that it didn't happen with Nebuchadnezzar. So they're admitting that it didn't happen with Nebuchadnezzar, that he didn't fulfill it uh, as they thought. And so then they're looking for other ways of this happening. I think open theism is superior, has a superior explanation here, in that God is saying, this is what God believes will happen given the, the present circumstances and, of course, the incredible might of Nebuchadnezzar's military and engineering capabilities. And so God was surprised that he didn't capture all of Tyre. Mm -hmm. and, and so that ties into all the biblical texts where God is surprised or uses if language or, you know, like maybe or if, or the text you brought up in, in Jeremiah. So I think this is an easier way of explaining those kinds of references and to say, well, God knows all the details, <laughs> but for some reason, God communicated in the text uh, in a way. And, <laughs> and so the details aren't really fulfilled in the way we, we expected. Yeah, that really destroys what the meaning of prophecy. I mean, if prophecy could be fulfilled through vague and unintuitive ways, then what's the point of the prophecy? What does it do, right? Yeah. So let's let's talk real yeah. quickly about what is the point of prophecy? How do you see prophecy? Okay. How does it function? Yeah, so I, I believe that prophecy is primarily about getting people to respond to God in proper ways. So God is trying to get Israel to worship Yahweh, to love one another, take care of widows and orphans, to have justice in the land, that kings should live righteously and treat you know the people under them with, with care and concern instead of exploitation. So when you read the prophets of the of the scripture and what Isaiah is mostly about, what Amos is oh my gosh, you know, thundering about, it, it's all about issues about how the community of faith the people who are supposed to be living in faith in Yahweh. And and so I see that as in, in the church as well, that uh, the point of, of prophecy is of, about how we are to live in uh, in response to God's grace, uh, God's goodness, the redemption in Jesus. This is how we are to live. So prophecies are about, look, I'm telling you this, if you keep Israel, if you keep going this way, then uh, destruction is going to come. And the northern ten tribes you know, break away from the southern two tribes, and they don't listen to that, and they are conquered by the Assyrians and moved from history. And the southern two tribes kind of thought of themselves as rather smug, like, yeah, well, you know, we didn't get destroyed because we have the Temple of Yahweh and we have the Ark of the Covenant. And Jeremiah mocks them, says, we have the Temple of Yahweh, the Temple of Yahweh, the Temple of Yahweh, he repeats it three times, saying, you think that because you have Yahweh's Temple, that the Babylonians can't conquer you. But I'm telling you, you will be conquered. The prophecy is, here's a warning. I'm telling you, this is, what's, this is what's going to happen. You need to change your ways. So I think the overall purpose of prophecy is to get the community of faith, Israel in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament, 
to uh, respond to God and respond to one another and live properly. Yeah, I absolutely think that is the case, as shown by the prophecy of Nineveh, which wasn't a conditional prophecy at all and has every indication of being fulfilled before they switched their ways. Our guest today has been John Sanders. I suggest everyone check out his blog. What's that blog address again? drjohnsanders.com, so drjohnsanders.com. If anyone has any questions or comments on today's podcast, feel free to put that on the God is Open website or the Facebook companion group page, God is Open. Thank you for listening. 